0: You are now listening to MacroDose. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of MacroDose Extra, where we go in depth with some of the leading voices from the world of economics. To celebrate hitting 100 MacroDose subscribers on Patreon.com this week, we're unlocking one of our favorite extra interviews on inflation, COVID economics, and tackling inequality with Gary Stevenson. Gary's a former city trader turned campaigner who made millions of pounds working at Citibank, betting that economic inequality would keep getting worse. He's now the host of a popular YouTube channel, Gary's Economics, where his short videos provide insight into how the economy is broken, how the rich are getting richer, and what we can do to fix it. Right, well, thank you, Gary, for agreeing to the interview. I was just thinking when, when we first met, which was either either at LSE... Um, which we both went to for our sins back in the day, Uh, the the post-crash economic society launch, I think it might be in 2013. Or, and this is where things get a bit confused, or it was in Tokyo uh, when you were still there, like the summer of 2014 or so. Yeah, if it was in 2014,
1: that was when I was still living in in, in Japan. And that was, I hadn't really, that was really before I'd done anything, gotten involved in anything about activism or talking about the economy. So if it was 2014, yeah, uh, Shinjuku Golden Guy, I think I took you to my... Favorite bar, Kangaroo Court decision. Yeah,
0: yeah. No, no, that was that, that was a good night out. That was um, much fun had by all. Um, but I remember you talking about your um, your your preferred bet at the time, which was that uh, oh, basically interest rates will never never go up, right? And this was like doing really well, did really well for many many years when everyone was like everyone else was betting, of course, and interest rates going up, and you were basically doing the opposite yeah. uh, and cleaning up because of that. But as we've seen over the last year or so, that doesn't apply anymore. So what's happened?
1: Yeah, I think. What's funny about this is, basically, for 12 consecutive years after 2008, markets said interest rates will go up next year. They spent 12 years saying interest rates will go up next year. Finally, in 2020 COVID, everybody agreed interest rates will never go up again. And now they're going up super quickly. So um, why is that? I guess first I need to explain why it was that I thought interest rates wouldn't go up. For me, so I worked at Citibank. 2008, and I saw these first few years after the crisis, so everybody's saying rates will go up, and they didn't go up. And the reason that economists think rates would go up at the time is because super low interest rates should get you out spending money, should get businesses investing, and it should eventually cause growth in the economy. That didn't happen. The reason why that didn't happen, in my opinion, is because that money never really filtered down to ordinary people. It all ended up being held by richer people. And rich people, if you give them money, they save it. And... If you have a weak economy and rich people are trying to save money, that's not going to be real investment. That's going to mean they're going to buy assets from ordinary people, which means inequality will get worse, less money in ordinary people's pockets. So it basically doesn't work because the money never filters down to ordinary people. right? Um, And the rich get richer and richer. They want to buy assets. Ordinary families get poorer and poorer. The economy gets weaker, so you never get out of it. Um, But what changed basically was, was COVID and lockdown and the huge amount of money given out. Um, In COVID, and early on in COVID, I've wrote articles and put out videos saying I think it will lead to a a big inflation because of the huge amount of money given out. And basically, I think that is what has happened. I think the government gave out a huge amount of money. Um, It can't be emphasised enough how much money it was, £600 billion, which would be £12,000 for every adult in the country. You give that money out, you cause inflation. Again, it went largely to rich people, but rich people like to save money, but if you give them enough, they'll start spending it and it, and it will cause inflation. So I think, it's a, in my opinion, and, and I know not everybody agrees on this, it's because of the massive amount of money given out during COVID, the massive fiscal stimulus during COVID, that the sheer size of it led to an inflation and that basically forced the
0: Bank of England and other central banks to react. I mean, there's a a couple of things to come back in that because I think this is where we have a a disagreement. But one of them is that in that case, if your thesis then is like interest rates stayed low for so long because of inequality, the the economy wasn't functioning properly and therefore you just get perpetually low interest rates until you get this fantastic shock to everything, which is COVID. And that's knocked stuff out of line. But basically you'd anticipate in what, a few years as the money sort of washes back out of the system again we're going to see inflation come back down, we're going to see interest rates come back down. And yeah. that's going to happen in the next few years would be your sort of rough prediction. In my opinion, I think if,
1: if governments move into a fiscal austerity space, yes. If we... because So in the middle of this year, when I could see there was going to be this massive energy price shock, and it became clear that governments were going to respond to that by another massive deficit... It got me a bit worried that we could get into a cycle of governments run deficits, mm-hmm. that increases inequality, increases inflation, decreases living standards, and governments respond to that by running deficits again. And I saw that and I thought, this could be a really bad cycle here of basically a massive increase in the government deficit and inflation spiralling out of control. Um, and I think, that's, I think some people in markets thought that, and that is why we saw the reactions in markets that we did. If we moved into that space of more and more bigger and bigger deficits, inflation would stay high. But it looks like what's going to happen is a move back towards austerity. And if that happens, I expect inflation and interest rates to come back down relatively quickly. Okay,
0: so, so I mean, look, these, at this point you can sound a bit like Jeremy Hunt or Rishi Sunak or someone if you're not careful, right? Which is that we've had this massive monetary stimulus and now we've had this huge fiscal stimulus uh, and therefore we're going to have to do austerity to bring things back to sort of normal. Now, the normal might be very disagreeable mm-hmm. you know, for, for most of us, but that would be their argument. And that is almost literally Jeremy Hunt's argument. So, so you're almost on the same page as him.
1: Well, I mean, I don't agree with the policies that the government are doing. I don't think that austerity is the right policy. Um, you know, my opinion is that, in my opinion, the inflation was caused by the money that was given out. But the big question is, who has that money now? It, it was 600 billion pounds that was given out, right? If that was evenly distributed, it would be 12,000 pounds for every adult in the country. But most people do not have 12,000 pounds because the money went, ended up overwhelmingly with the rich. And this is something that I've spoken about since the beginning of COVID. If people want to understand how the money ended up with the rich, there's a video on my YouTube channel people can watch or we can talk about it now. At the very beginning of COVID, when we knew the government was going to give out hundreds of billions of pounds, people should have been asking who's going to end up with that money. And nobody asked that. And I think that is... I mean, they are now a bit, right? This
0: is coming through. A with little the, bit. The sort of basically corruption around the, the contracts. And um, things. You know, that, that is it,
1: opening some of those questions. Yeah, on. but you, the, the corruption is, accounts for a very small amount of that money. Sure. Really, the, there was very little, and there still has been very little critical analysis of where the money ends up, end up just doing normal things like furlough. Because f- for me, my history is I've made money by understanding how inequality affects economies. So when the government's going to give out £600 billion, I will know who ends up with it. And people think, well, the furloughed workers got it. But if you look at the furloughed workers, they don't end up richer because they've lost their wages, right? So I was sitting there thinking, well, who, who ends up with the money? Somebody has £600 billion here, but it's not the furloughed workers. But the reason the furloughed workers aren't richer is because they're not getting paid their wages. So, is it the corporations who are getting rich because they're not paying their wages? Well, actually, it's not because the, the, the corporations who had furloughed workers were shut down. Yeah. The people who accumulated money are the people who are normally customers of those corporations. But it was only luxury industries that were shut down, right? You know, if your expenditures are rent, mortgage, food, bills, you still have to pay them. Yeah. But if you have massive luxury expenditure, you can't spend it. So really, what happened during COVID was the rich... Stopped spending £600 billion and the government spent £600 billion instead. Well, if you follow that through, that is going to lead to a transfer of cash of £600 billion from the government sure, to the but rich.
0: It doesn't sound inflationary, right? You're replacing one thing with another. You're not adding to it. No, because what, what you got with the lockdown is everything closes, yeah? And then you put money into it so you bring things no, but back up things,
1: again. This is the key. Some things don't close. Rent, mortgage, food bills did not stop. So the transfer of money from poor people and ordinary people to the rich didn't stop. Because you still pay your rent, you still have to pay food. But the transfer of money from the rich to ordinary people did stop. So you normally have a cycle which is, I pay my rent, the rich guy has a high amount of luxury spending, and the cash goes in a circle. But during Covid, the rich stopped spending, which meant ordinary families would have stopped eating. But the government printed the money and gave it to ordinary families. Now, from the perspective of an ordinary family, nothing's changed. You used to get your money from the rich, now you get your money from the government. But from the perspective of the government and from the rich, things have changed massively. The government is absolutely churning money out and the rich are absolutely stacking that money up because the rich simply stop spending and the rich spend an enormous amount of money in ordinary times. So I was screaming from the beginning of COVID, there's no back to normal here because at the end of COVID, the government will have £600 billion in debt and the rich will have £600 billion in cash
0: and they do have that. Yeah, you're right. I mean, look, you can you can see that in the figures around savings and what's happened to bank accounts uh, during COVID that, that so many people were basically not you know, you're still for instance, I mean this is spreads out a bit more, I'd say, than than just, you know, the super rich or something. If you're on furlough, you'd be getting money, not your entire salary, but you wouldn't be spending other than essentials, food, and a few other things, because everything's shut, right? So you build up savings. Yeah. And that that is something that obviously the richer you are, the more you do of this. You're not yeah. going on holiday, for example. So you don't spend that money, you just save it. So you can see that transfer um, taking place there. But then the question starts to open up as like, well, what do you do about it? Because you've you got this big imbalance. Yeah, That you have a very large government deficit and debt... That's sitting over here, and you have great stacks of money that's sitting in people's bank accounts. Yeah. Not just people, actually. I think there's also a great deal of accumulation by big companies during Covid and coming out yeah. the other side. And you can we can get on to, you know, what's happened with the inflation we're seeing. But what do you do about it?
1: I think the first thing is you need to have a discussion, right? And, and this discussion should have been had during Covid, which was, okay, lockdown is a necessary health policy. The economic consequence will be an enormous transfer of cash from the government to the rich. Now, I would like to pose a question, right? If the rich get richer by 600 billion pounds during a period of time when the economy is literally closed, where does the money come from? Who gets poorer? You, you, you cannot make the rich 600 billion pounds richer when the economy is closed without making ordinary families poorer. It's not possible. It's not possible because you haven't produced anything in that period of time. You know, well, so, you, you produce money. Exactly. Well, that I, that I would this be this the is, argument here, right? And I, I think. Any sensible... If I was to come and ask ask you five years ago, what do you think would happen, just as a thought experiment, if we gave £120,000 to every single adult in the richest 10% of the country, printed cash? If I asked you that, and we sat and we had a drink about it, I suspect after a bit of discussion, you would say, well, what will probably happen is there'll be enormous inflation and ordinary families will suffer. Because... Money is not resources. If you give a huge amount of money to one group of society, the rest of society suffers through inflation. That's,
0: that's the reason why we don't normally fund things by printing a tonne of money. Well, uh, unless they save it. I mean, look, we, we, we spent a long period of time... F- funding things somewhat indirectly with QE, right? QE starts in 2009. That's Uh January, March, that sort of period in Britain and in the US and uh, in Europe a bit later. And everyone starts doing that. And it runs all the way through that decade. Mm -hmm. And then it hits COVID and it's another massive increase in it. But that's a lot of QE with not much inflation during that period of time. So, So you can, more or less, get your central bank to just issue a load of new money and not get loads and loads of inflation. Well,
1: first of all, in 2011... A similar time period after 2008 as to what we're seeing now there was a period of very high inflation not as high as now people forget about it but it's really 2011 yeah i mean
0: it was was, what five percent it was about five and a half
1: percent for a year it was driven primarily by natural resources Mm -hmm. it was very very similar to what we're seeing now but the only difference was scale and then after that we saw 10 years of enormous asset inflation yeah so i think for me, that is what I would expect if you give a ton of money to the rich. You'd see a bit of upfront CPI inflation and then long-run massive asset inflation. And that's because the rich buy primarily assets. So if you give them a load of cash, the first thing they'll do is they'll try and buy assets. And then asset markets will rocket. Then they'll all be like, well, not only do we have a load of cash, but all our assets have gone up in price. And then they'll start spending more. And, you know, if you combine that with, at the same time, a natural resource shock, yeah. you know, when you have a natural resor- a resource shock like Less Energy what you would want societally is to reduce your non-essential energy use, which a lot of it is luxury, non-essential use by the rich. But if you've given every single rich person in the country 200 grand cash, are they going to reduce their energy use in response to an increase in energy prices? They're not even going to notice. You know, I think ultimately, at the end of the day, we exist in an economy of finite resources, and there is a competition for resources. And if we give... And in not, we're literally talking about hundreds of thousands of pounds to every single wealthy adult.
0: They will use more resources and poor people will get less. I mean, the, the issue there, I suppose, is, is not so much that... Yeah, that you, you can have the money going around in lots and lots of different ways, right? There's a, there's a clear switch, I think, in quantitative easing from what you got at the coming out of the financial crisis where it's fairly indirectly, if it's financing government spending at all, it's very indirect. What you get mm-hmm. under COVID is pretty much directly it's financing government spending. I mean, yeah. this is the Bank of England issuing money and that money immediately goes into uh, fueling the deficit and fueling spending. So, so there's a switch and the money moves different, differently. And we expect yeah. that to have different uh, consequences out the other side. The, the challenge, I think, for the idea that it's only money that matters in like what happens to inflation is that actually things like look at what's happened to coffee prices over the last couple of years because you keep having droughts and frosts in Brazil, so coffee supplies are disrupted, grain supplies are being disrupted, harvests very, very bad, obviously, in Ukraine all this year, to be bad next year, so that's a real disruption, that's a real mm-hmm. sort of loss of something you'd otherwise expect to be there. Um, you can keep doing this. I mean, yeah. things like tomatoes in this country, much harder to grow, potatoes being affected. Uh-huh. Right? These are real, not monetary factors. And mm-hmm. if prices are going up now, it's the real shock that's pulling prices up and pulling money into circulation, not money that's pushing prices along?
1: I don't think that real shocks are are not important. I think real shocks can affect inflation. Um, But I think that, you know, my history is I was a trader. And as a trader, you don't make money by being right. You make money by being right, specifically when other people are wrong. So I'm always listening out for when I think the group has got it wrong. And I think that since the beginning of COVID, there has been a massive underestimation. I think, not even underestimation, I think most people simply did not even notice. You know, I was on a call in the middle of COVID, like where I was saying, guys, we need to be careful. There's going to be massive inflation coming out of COVID. The amount of money piling up in people's bank accounts is massive. And, you know, somebody came out on the call and they said, but it's only, the amount of money given out, it's only about £1,000 per person. And it's £12,000 per person, right? I think that... You know, you can. I'm not a pure monetarist. So I don't think it's every all inflation is caused by money. But if you give every rich person in the country 150 grand, it's that you know.
0: But that will be asset price inflation. No, but, right? well, that won't but be ordinary assets? goods who do inflation. Who they buy
1: assets from? You know, from one another. You know, sure, so, sure, so but, the but that's, that,
0: that's the asset prices going up because of the money. It's not the price of everything else going up because of the money.
1: Even if rich people buy assets.
0: It does. the money doesn't disappear. You know, so for
1: example, you know, my parents would probably have liked to have kept their house till they died and, and, and given that to my sister, okay? But now, house prices have gone up and the cost of living has gone up. They will probably have to sell that house to fund their retirement, all right? Yeah. So ultimately, they are selling their assets to the rich and they're spending the money. Yeah. Which And this is what happens when the rich buy assets from the middle class. The middle class spend the money, but... The money does not disappear. I think people, people thought, okay, if you give the rich 100 grand each, they'll spend 100 grand and then it's gone. But that 100 grand state, if the government is keeping a debt of, now in total the debt is about £30,000 per adult in the country, somebody has to hold £30,000 cash to offset that. And it's, you know, I don't know about you, but I don't
0: hold £30,000 cash. And I mean, I, from the point of view of this economy where we are in Britain, yeah. right, that money, some of it can disappear. You know, because you have to go and pay a, a fortune now to Qatar or Norway to get yeah. natural gas, like much, much more than we used to do. So some of that money is disappearing. And it's but, going, all right, ultimately it might go to wealthy people in other countries, uh-huh. but it's disappearing in terms of this economy.
1: Well, it goes to wealthy Qataris, but they're not going to sit on it either. You know, somebody has to be convinced to sit on it. And I think, I think this is, you know, I, I think we're going to see a massive... Exp- I think house prices will double in the next six, seven years. And I think stock prices will probably do more than that. Because who, who is going to be convinced to hold... If, if the government is going to have bigger and bigger and bigger debt, somebody needs to be convinced to hold the money. And I wouldn't hold it. You well, know, then, then we're back into, like,
0: why are interest rates going up?
1: Well, real interest rates are not. Real interest rates have never been more negative, right?
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, nominal interest rates can go as high as you want, as long as they're, you know, close to or less than inflation. Real, I, don't think, I don't think we'll ever see a
0: positive real interest rate again in our lives. Okay, so, 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 the, so the, broadly speaking, we're back to what we were talking about just now, which is that real interest rates remain flat because there's such massive inequality. Yeah, but because rich, if, if you have very high inequality,
1: then that means the rich own huge amounts of assets, which means mm-hmm. they generate huge amounts of income. It means ordinary people have very little assets, which means they can't spend much. Yeah. So you have the rich with huge amounts of income, trying to invest. There's no real investments because there's no consumer. Mm -hmm. So all they do is compete with one another to buy existing assets. Asset prices go through the roof, which means that asset prices going through the roof is the same as interest rates being low, because if you have anything which has a positive interest rate, it will get bought until it has a zero interest rate.
0: So, but that, that sort of model there is disrupted by COVID. You have this sort of shock, but it's a big shock but it's a temporary shock. There's nothing that comes long-lasting out of what we've seen in the last few years. Yeah, In five years' time, it's all back to normal. COVID didn't affect
1: that because real interest rates didn't go up, right? Real interest rates went down. Inflation went up way more than interest rates. So I think think COVID has exacerbated that, really, because it's really because COVID has massively increased inequality. So I think that now the rich have enormously more money than they ever had. And I can't see, you know, unless the government taxes the rich... How are the rich going to stop having that money? It's it's going to become like a hot potato, right? Because every single rich person has got 500 grand in the bank and they're thinking, well, I better get rid of this before asset prices go up. So that, you know, and you know, I said at the beginning of COVID, we're going to see a massive increase in house prices. And, you know, not many people were saying that at that point in time. You know, the Guardian Larry, Larry Elliott ran out saying house prices are going to go down. But I think they're going to go up massively. And it's simply because it is incontestable that the rich have an enormous amount of money now.
0: And what you, they're not just going to sit on it. They're going to buy assets, they're going to buy houses. Yeah, look, this, this bit uh, I don't, don't disagree with, right? This is the bit where I think we're in, a, in broad agreement on that part of the thing. But I suppose it's the question of, well, what do you do about it, right? If house prices are going up, do you start yeah. saying, OK, we're going to start taxing house price increases? Yeah, it's a good way to make yourself popular with people. I think of people. you have to tax the rich on their wealth. But who's the rich then? I mean, what I normally campaign for is taxes on,
1: on wealth of above 10 million pounds.
0: Okay.
1: Um, I think ordinary people are understandably concerned when they hear people say tax the rich. They think you're going to go off, you're going to say the rich, the rich are going to avoid it, and you're going to tax me. Yeah. So I'm explicitly calling for taxes on the very rich. And of course, clamping down on tax evasion is so how it actually hits the rich. And People turn around and say, "Well, you can't, you can't do that if you tax them, they'll leave." Didn't work for Oman Abramovich, did it? He tried to leave and he got taxed because ultimately the reason that these guys are rich is because they own fixed assets. Yeah, you know these guys are more taxable than anyone. You know, I can try and tax you, and you can leave, and you can work in another country. But if you own Chelsea Football Club, you can't take Chelsea Football Club to another country. We need to tax the rich, and you know, in my opinion, it's totally doable. The reason that we don't tax the rich is because we have a prime minister who is worth seven hundred million pounds whose father was one of the richest men in the world. David Cameron made 10 million pounds within a year of leaving office. How much is Tony Blair worth? 20, 30 million. You know, we we have put in the power of people who, if not are very rich, are about to become very rich. The question of, should we tax very rich people? And, you know, if you ask someone who's about to become very rich, should we tax very rich people? They'll often say, oh, we'd love to, but it's impossible. Of course it's possible. We can send somebody to the fucking moon. I might have to swear on this. Yeah, sure. We can send somebody to the moon. Of course, we can tax rich people. And and people could turn around and say, it's impossible, it's impossible. Well... So it's not taxing the rich people then, is it? It's the taxing the rich assets. Right, that's the real wealth, problem, is It's it? about taxation of wealth. Forget income. Listen, if, if your life is about income, you're already lost. You'll never be rich. Mm-hmm. Rich people don't work. Rich people own assets. You know, and I think people often don't realise this. You know, if you're Rishi Sunak, net worth £700 million, he will make... Every single year, 20, 30 million Mm pounds for getting out of bed. Where's that money coming from? It's coming from you. But, you know, if if you don't tax him, what's he going to do? He's going to use that 30 million pound. He's going to spend one million pound a year, live like the queen, and use the 29 million pound to buy the rest of the assets. So it's going to get worse. So if we don't do this, listen, I am a person who has made millions of pounds by betting that the future of the economy is going to be fucking terrible. That is what will happen if we don't tax the rich. So we have to do it. I don't care if it's hard. Some things are worth doing if they are, even if they are hard. You know, I don't need to do this. I could be on a beach in the Philippines. And it's, I understand that I'm fighting against powerful people and it's a difficult battle to win. If we do not win the battle of fighting the rich, this country will fall into mass, widespread, serious poverty. And you're
0: seeing it in front of your eyes. I mean, the question then, I suppose, is after you've taxed the rich, what do you do next? You've you've got these resources that were in their hands. It's now been put into the governments, let's say. So what do you do then? You know, I'm going to chuck an idea out there just to be provocative. I honestly think if you were to tax the
1: rich hundreds of billions of pounds and you were to just destroy the money, you would massively improve the living conditions for ordinary people. Because we have just seen that experiment in reverse, right? We've seen what happens if you print £600 billion and give it to the rich. And the answer is... Massive inflation, a massive increase of inequality, a massive increase in asset prices, and a collapse in living standards. Listen, distribution matters. I think it's important for people to realise money is not real resources, right? Money is not real resources. If I give you nothing, and I give that 5% of society 200 grand each, you will get poorer, because money is the resource that we use to determine the distribution of the real resources. So, if you make the rich richer and richer, they will take more of the real resources. So we need, to, we need to make them poorer. It's the only way to make ordinary
0: people's lives affordable. Although this opens up the question, not just a distribution of, of production. Like, those real resources come from somewhere. Yeah. So it's not just, we will rearrange the distribution of claims to those resources, yeah. which is what happens if you tax the rich. There's also, like, how are we getting those real resources? Yeah. So there's a, a bit of an issue here where you say, okay, we just tax the rich. It's then, well, what do you do next? What's the next step in getting the economy to work for people? You have to think about what happens in the production side. Well, I mean, now you're
1: getting into the the contested ground of which people would never like to talk about, which is actually industrial policy of how do you actually make this country a country which produces things, a lot of things, valuable things, um, which is something economists very, very rarely talk about. Yeah, I mean, you, you need investment, don't you? And I think this is... This is some, I find it fascinating, right? I've got two economics degrees, right? I was three years at LSE, two years at Oxford. Um, and in that whole period of time, really, I learned nothing about what determines how much investment there is in the economy.
0: Which is amazing, right? Like, there's, I, mean, I think in theory, you're supposed to learn it's the interest rate, isn't it, aren't you? You're, that's the basically idea. You, you draw your ISLM there's, diagram, yeah, that's it's basically it, basically
1: right? two theories. Right? One, one is savings equals investment, which yeah. I think everybody knows is bullshit, right? I mean... Yeah. We've just, we just saw 10 years of massive, nobody spending any money, and there was no investment. And the other theory is that it's the interest rate. And we just saw 10 years of zero interest rates and no investment. Yep. So the, the two sort of main theories about investment in economies, which is it's about saving, we know that's bullshit, mm-hmm. and it's about the interest rate, we know that's bullshit. You know, and I think, for, for me, my personal opinion is, if you want investment, it's about a balance of, you do need people saving, but you also need people spending. Right, and
0: at the moment, the problem is you know ordinary people don't have money to spend. Um, so, so this is straight Keynesianism. This is like this is animal spirits is one part of it. So you need people, you need entrepreneurs to feel like they want something to happen. I mean, I think but this they will is, move if there's spending that they I can I think obtain. this is
1: as much as sort of you can get from top level economic analysis. I think really macroeconomics, modern macroeconomics, has has basically nothing interesting to say about investment. Sure, and I think that there's an interesting discussion. Really, I think the, the discussion of investment is quite infantile. Yeah, it's like, oh, we want interest rates to be low. You know, you know. Really, somebody needs to have a vision about what do we want this country to look like. You know, what actually, what things do we want? What things do we want to be producing? What things do we want to have? How do we get those things? You know, do we need government involvement? How much government involvement do we need? you know, can the private sector provide
0: those things? But this is all very, I won't say it's old school, although it is a bit, the, the, the idea that government should be deciding what is produced, right? This has been out of fashion for a long period of time. Now, look, I think it's coming well, in back country, in. in this coming, country, it's coming back in here. It's, not it's going fashion back fashion here, in the place where they produce everything, yeah. it's very much it's, in fashion. It's, it's, well, exactly, and this is, everybody else is starting to copy that, right? That's why suddenly the US has a big plan for producing semiconductors just in the US, that's why the yeah. EU's trying to do something similar. And there's even supposed to be a semiconductor strategy in Britain at some point. Yeah, I think... I think what
1: what what the world is showing us is that you can't be an economist just with formulas. Yeah. At some point, you need to look at the world and say, "Well, what stuff do we do we need and what stuff do we want?" You know, and you know, if you leave it all up to the free market, then it will all end up getting produced in in very unequal places with very cheap wages and very. So,
0: why, why has it got such a grip, though? Because like I remember after two thousand eight, because yeah. I, I did the I did. Nah, not quite the same degree as you, but you, you get taught all of this at yeah. LSE in particular, yeah, right? Yeah. The the here's your here's your diagrams of how uh, the world works, and you do a masters, and here's your formulas of how the world works, yeah. And it's exactly that model of interest rates basically determine investment, right? Uh, and yeah. everything will work out just fine. You can have an economy, as you we were saying before 2008, where there's loads of debt, but it doesn't matter because house prices are going up, and house yeah. prices will just carry on going up forever. They won't ever crash. It's all going to be good, right? Yeah. And we all thought after 2008, uh-huh. all of that was going to be blown out of the water. We aren't going to do macroeconomics like this anymore. Yeah. And yet it's still there, right? So why has it got that grip? Because all of the people who have the power and the right to talk about these things in public yeah.
1: are massively invested in these complex mathematical ideas being true. If they're not true, why these guys have a job? You know, the, these guys need that stuff to be true, you know? And, and I always think back to... When I did my master at Oxford, it came up in one lecture that spending was, was surprisingly low after 2008. Yeah. And my ears sort of pricked up, like, okay, here you're talking about something that's actually important for once. So I said to him, why, why is it you think that spending was low? And he said to me, oh, we're not really sure, but we think it was because of an exogenous shock to consumption savings preferences. I think that tells you everything you need to know, in a sense, because... That term "exogenous shock" is—it's a, it's a technical term in academic economics, which means something changed outside the model. Yeah, it's something we don't know about happened. Yeah, yeah so You're explaining I, I, nothing I've, when you say. This. I've asked him a question about the real world, and he said, in in a, a complicated way that nobody would ever understand, no ordinary person would ever understand, something outside the model changed. Well, that's insane, right? Because I've asked him a question about the world, the real world, right? But you've got a version of economics right now that doesn't actually explain things that happen. Yeah, right? but you've you've been at these universities, right? The, I've, got, I've been at these universities, all right? This is what happens when you do an economics degree. You turn up, you do a few diagrams, then you go to do your exam, and the exam is basically you have to regurgitate three hours of memorised algebra. Sure. And that's the same for your master's. Yeah. So by the time you've come through, you've basically spent seven, eight years of your life memorising algebra. The truth is, you don't know shit about the economy. Yep. You need nobody to realise that. Because that is your career, you know what I mean. And think about it, right? If you actually are somebody who has generated a genuine understanding yeah, yeah. of what is actually happening in the economy, you can go work in them skyscrapers over there for two million pound a year on one condition, one legal condition that you shut the fuck up and never tell anyone. So, really, what do you think is going to happen? You know, you know, you get what you pay for, right? Yeah. And if you if you are you know, watching BBC News for free and then a, a good economist can get paid £2 million a year over there to say nothing. The end result is the economic analysis you get is, is nonsense. Yeah. I think that's the... And, and that is the system we've designed, right? You know, when I finished... I finished my undergrad. I got a very good grade in my undergrad, all right? All of the top students went to work in the city. Yeah. Who stayed on? People who, were, who didn't get the grades to go to work in the city or people from rich families. You would be insane to get a good undergrad degree in economics and not be from a rich family and stay in academia. That's exactly what I did, Gary, unfortunately.
0: So, uh, <laughs> well, so th- thanks for congrats, that. You're obviously, <laughs> but, you're obviously a better yeah, man than lot me. a good, it did me, <laughs> right? But, but the question is, what do you do about it? Um,
1: I think... I, I, we should talk about this, right? Because I think economics, the state of public economics is... Amazing. It's amazing. It's am- it is amazing how low it has come. And it's, it's, it's terrible. I'll use another story from when I was at Oxford, right? I was, one of my first lectures, we we're talking about interest rates. Mm-hmm. I was one of the most successful interest rates traders in the world just two years before that. And we have been wrong as a society for 10 years at that point in interest yeah. rates. I go up to him and say, why have we been so wrong in interest rates? And he says to me, oh, no, we always knew rates would stay zero. And I didn't know what to say, this, that, is, that is categorically wrong, and I've witnessed that, you know, for years. And I said to him, no, you, everybody said they were about to go up the whole time. He said, no, we knew, we knew. So I went home, I sent the data, and then he just emailed me back, saying, oh, that's interesting, yeah, you're right. So here's a guy teaching interest rates at Oxford University. Yeah. Wrong for ten years in a row. Doesn't even realise he's been wrong for ten years in a row. This is, this is comedically bad. And, but the, the problem is, it shouldn't be allowed. You shouldn't be allowed to be wrong 10 years in a row and not notice. These, we need to introduce some system of reward for being right
0: and punishment for being wrong. That does well, not that exist is, in isn't, economics. Isn't that, isn't that what you get if you're trading, in theory? Yes. Right. The market yes. is supposed to do exactly this. Well, if that's the thing, as a
1: trader, you at least have to try to be right because you can't get away with being wrong all the time. But if you are working for The Guardian or if you're working for BBC News or if you're working for the Conservative Party or the Labour Party or if you're a professor at Oxford or Cambridge or Harvard, no punishment for being wrong, no reward for being
0: right. OK, so we should marketise all of them. We should, we should subject all of them to having to, you know, earn their money by being right or th- wrong against some market you, test. I, if we did that, there'd be a lot less bullshit going around. I mean, I do wonder about that with academic uh, economics in particular. There's all theory about how great markets are, but then academic economics is subject to, you know, not actually subject to this sort of market determination there's no Nobody's checking the homework. Nobody's checking the homework. Well, they they check each other's. I mean, that's the the problem with the system, right? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I talk to these guys and
1: I say, you know, why have you been wrong for 10 years in a row? And they say, they will literally say, it's impossible to predict.
0: And I'll say, well, I predicted it right for 10 years. And they'll say, well, you were just lucky. I mean, there are there are some, you know, if I'm thinking here, there, there, there have been, prior to COVID, there were attempts to explain why is it that nothing seems to work, right? There, there were various economists trying to do this. Secular stagnation yeah, being and... a popular sort of explanation for this. I want thing. to make it clear, because it, it might sound for what I'm saying that I think all economists
1: are idiot. I do not no. believe that at all, all right? There are good economists in academia, all right? You know, there's, there are guys who talk who say the same things as me, basically, that inequality is driving interest rates down and asset prices up and making life worse, you know? Atif Mian and Amir Sufi and Ludwig Straub say exactly the same thing that I'm saying, right? But there is no system to get these guys' voices to the front. Yeah. So, so, I come from Ilford. That's just down the road, right? Poor family, poor background, all right? I got a job in Canary Wharf. Within three years, I was famous in that place because I was the guy who was always right, okay? At the beginning of COVID, I put out an article saying that we're going to see massive increase in inequality, massive increase in house prices, massive increase in inflation, massive decrease in living standards. At the same time, Larry Elliott at The Guardian is saying house prices are going to go down and everyone is saying we're going to see a massive pent-up demand mm-hmm. boom afterwards, right? Do they get punished for being wrong? No. Do I get recognised for being right? No, right? If you have a system where over there in the city, they relentlessly, continually look for the guys who are right, yeah and in any case of public-serving economics, nobody is even making any attempt to look for the people who have been right, yeah. inevitably you will end up with a posh boys club. Because the reason why a kid like me can be the top over there is because I'm right. But if you have no method of realistically analysing who's good or who's bad, other than we all look at each other and say, oh, he's good, he's good, well, then, of course, all the posh boys will point at each other and say, he's good. All the guys with the cultural capital will, yeah. will rise to the top. And then, look... I worked in the city and now I work in journalism, okay? That place is a million times more meritocratic because somebody like me can point to the guys at the top and say, you dickheads are all wrong and one year later, everybody has to say, yeah, he was right. He's the guy now.
0: Oh, famously so. Journalism in Britain's famously not meritocratic, right? If you go through the list of people who are senior reporters and editors and national papers, yeah. they're all from, you know, Private school backgrounds, very well, privileged. They can be because there's oh, quite not quite really... all of them, right? But you're talking seventy five percent. Is that the kind if of if you're
1: of, not testing for ability, then yeah. you're testing for poshness. That's the way that it works. You know what I mean? And I think we need to. If you don't have any way for smart guys from poor backgrounds to point at the rich idiots in charge and say you're wrong, and I'm going to prove you're wrong, then the rich idiots will stay in charge forever. And we need to have, you know. We need to have a way for voices like mine to get heard, who are screaming, this is going to happen. And when it happens, say, well, he's the guy that said it was going to happen. Can
0: we listen to him? You know what I mean? I think, I think it's worth doing. Well, we did we did once. I mean, we still do. It's, it's, I'll, I'll go on to this question, I suppose. We did once have institutions that did that, which was the trade unions, right? Mm-hmm. If you want people from ordinary backgrounds to point out the people in charge of being idiots, the trade union movement provide you a good way to do this. I, I think yeah. Mick Lynch you know, from the summer onwards, has been a a very good example of someone who's done exactly that. I mean, he's done a fantastic job. You put him on an interview and people sort of yell and shout, he very calmly demolishes various bad arguments. With, by the way, a much better understanding of economics than a lot of the economics commentators you've seen. Things like the wage price spiral he's been able to dismiss, you know, understanding what's happened to money, that sort of thing. But I wanted to ask then, what do you see in this case, the role of trade unions in dealing with any of this stuff?
1: You know, I wish I knew more about trade unions than... I've been super busy the last few months. If, if I was more free, I'd been trying, I, I would be trying to reach out to Mick Lynch and the Enough is Enough, guys, because I'm so happy to see these guys coming through yeah. and saying, well, look how much money the rich are making. Because that's what I've been saying from the start, right? Look how much money the rich are making. You know, th- this is the big, the big unspoken thing during COVID yeah. is that it has been the biggest and fastest ever increase in millionaire and billionaire wealth in the country. And I think if people knew that, people would be up in arms, right? If, if you have a situation where the rich are making money at the fastest rate ever in history and ordinary families are losing the ability to heat their homes and feed their kids and the reason the rich got richer is because they indirectly got £600 billion from the government. People would say the mo- it's the most obvious thing in the world. You need to get the money back from the rich. But nobody's really pointing the finger at the rich and it, it drives me mad. And then, it, it, you know, I, I have been very happy to see Lynch and Eddie Dempsey come out and say, well, look at the rich, look at the rich, look at the money they're making. And I think it's super interesting that they are reaching that analysis, not from a background in economics, at least not academic economics, from a trade unions. So, you know, I'd love to go I would love to speak to these guys and I'd love to know where they get their analysis because, in my opinion, it's the best analysis I'm seeing.
0: Well, some it's just I mean, look, there's a there's a basic common sense that I think a lot of people get, and you get if you if you're particularly involved with like, you yeah. know workplace struggles and trade unionism, that sort of thing, you do get a pretty blunt idea of like who's in charge and mm-hmm. who, how well they're doing out of this. Uh, you, you can see that, I think, particularly the RMT, which has been one of the more active trade unions over the last few decades now. But there's also this question where like, you don't have to get the government to tax the rich. Mm-hmm. There's also a question where, actually, if you have an effective trade union organisation, you can start to redistribute yourselves. You can start to say, okay, whoever's owning this company has done very well. And we've seen incredible profits on the back of inflation uh, over the last sort of 18 months, 12 months or so. And you can say, okay, we will take your profits and turn it into wages, right? You you don't have to use government to do this. You've got something else that can kick in here. I
1: I think an interesting thing happened during COVID, which is, you know, some economists have been pontificating on, oh, what's going on with the labour market? It's weird. It's weird because the labour market is super tight but real wages are, have gone down. If the labor market is tight, why haven't real wages gone up? Um, but to me, it makes perfect sense, right? Because, you know, if you give a ton of money to the rich, yeah. a ton of money to the rich, then basically what you're doing is devaluing the currency, right? Yeah. So, but and then what you want is for all prices to rise together. It's what you need, right? But some prices move way more quickly than others. And the, 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 most, the, fa- the most famous difficult to move price is wages. So, you know, asset markets move up really, really quickly and then shop prices move up. And then w- what you've done is effectively cut wages. Yeah. So I think if you understand COVID as a real terms wage cut via the method of devaluing the currency, it makes total sense
0: that the labor market is tight because suddenly labor is super fucking cheap. For companies, right? Kind of. I mean, there's. I take this sort of slightly different view. And that first one is coming straight out of the lockdowns in 2021. Yeah. Before inflation really started kicking off, you were starting to see like quite impressive real wage gains. I mean, you're still seeing this, by the way, there's-, there's Yeah, there's real specific- wage gains or nominal wage gains? In uh, some Nominal sectors. wage gains, which were real wage gains because yeah. inflation was low. Okay. And you're still seeing some of this, lorry drivers, I keep seeing reports, lorry drivers, bus drivers, where there's a real tightness in the labour market, people can win above yeah. inflation pay increases. So that, that means right now it's like 11, 12, 15%, that kind yeah. of thing. You can get that in specific bits. Yeah. The problem I would say in general is that you may well have a tight labour market, but without any sort of collective organisations to make use of that, there's not a lot you can do. I mean, you remember the great yeah. resignation, everyone was going to quit their job. Actually, yeah. a lot of people did. They just quit their job and go and get another one uh-huh. down the road. I remember chatting to a, a bouncer in like summer 2021. And he was saying he'd just left one job and gone to another one and got like yeah. 50% pay rise like yeah. from that morning. Because that it's a tight labour market. Yeah. But unless you have the collective organisation, unless you have trade unions, unless you have unions, frankly, like we used to have in the 70s, yeah. where you know half the people are in one and they can fight for something, you don't turn that potential of a tight labour market into actual real wage gains.
1: Yeah, I think the problem that we have is that inequality has increased massively during COVID. Yeah. So what that means then is that the way that different people have been hit with regards to their job, yeah. it massively depends. It really depends on are your customers rich, or are your customers ordinary families? If your customers are rich, then you, you can massively increase your pay. You know, I still talk to guys who work in the city,
0: yeah.
1: though their pay has increased enormously, because ultimately they're working for the rich, and the rich are massively richer. Yeah. But if your customers are, you know, if you run a pub, a local pub, yeah. you know, and your customers are you know, ordinary people who are massively squeezed, yeah. then you're gonna be in trouble. So I think it makes total sense when you consider there's been a massive increase in inequality, that some people in the labour market have done really well, Mm -hmm. and some have done really, really badly. And um, of course, without question, I support the striking workers. But you can see in the media, they're going to do what they always do, which is try and use that to create division amongst workers who are not getting pay rises and workers who are, right? So I I don't want to see us go down that path. That's That's my concern, is that it gets used to create division.
0: Well, they, they try. I mean, look, that's the, the story from the government. The story even from the, the governor of the Bank of England, I remember, was trying this one on, where, you know, oh, it's, you know, if we have some people who can go on strike yeah. and win pay rises, that's not fair, and everybody else who can't, right? Mm. And remember, try and make this argument. The, the problem with that argument is that what you find, like, historically, is that... M- People in work, if they see somebody else winning a pay rise because they've yeah. gone on a strike or they've organised or something, it's a really good example for them. It yeah. gives them more incentive to try it themselves. It, it's, it starts to reinforce the movement in general. you got this 50s, 60s, into the 70s Uh that basically you could be in a trade union and you'd be in one because you could see it was getting results. Now, Mm -hmm. what we've had for like three decades really in this country is you'd be in a trade union and mostly it just doesn't make any difference. Mostly you're just there. Maybe it's all right if you have a particular, you know, individual issue at work. It's good to have a rep, that kind of thing. In terms on the mass scale, it hasn't existed. What's quite exciting at the minute is that you might start to see people seeing that if the nurses win a decent settlement, if the RMT win, there'll yeah. be a whole load of other people out there who'll think, well, we can do that as well. And they should think that. So I mean, I hope, problem, I I a hope a that's what factor. it does. I
1: mean, I would love for it to start to create a sense of solidarity between between ordinary working people in different industries, different sectors, because the, the scale and the speed of the fall of living conditions here is mm. massive. Yeah, yeah. And it is, you know, it's hitting 70, 75% of the population are feeling it. And... I say that with full knowledge that it's the people at, at the bottom that get hit the worst. Yeah. But a huge number of people are getting hit here. And I think this could be, and I, and I really hope it is, an opportunity for a really broad coalition of people yeah. to start looking at the, the, the rich and the very rich who are doing fantastically well here and saying, listen, if we don't do something about this, this systemic issue we have in place where we all keep getting poorer and our lives all keep getting worse, then you know our futures our kids future's are going to be really really bleak so i hope and i'll be working towards it creating that sense of solidarity between different kinds of working people but I, I see you know in various sections of the media i see them trying to to drive people against each other and and you know i start i start using a lot in my videos you know these ideas this idea to come together to push back you know if you're not you know ultimately if you are an ordinary person you know if your assets are less than you know half million, a million quid, you are not going to be able to fight with the super rich. You know, you're not going to be able to beat them by trading Bitcoin. Your power is in numbers. And the only, you only use that if you come together. So I really hope that this is an opportunity for people to start realizing that the best way to protect the interests of themselves, their families, their communities, is to build a sense of community and togetherness with other people who are in poor and ordinary situations. I hope, I hope that, that that's what we get.
0: Well, that seems like a good place to start to wrap things up because we've been uh, chatting for a while now. It's, it's been a good chat, but I wanted to um, just do one last thing which we've been asking other uh, guests to recommend perhaps a book or something they've seen recently. Just something that's been interesting for them that perhaps they could uh, recommend to other people. Yeah, no, so I'm, I'm writing a book at the moment and the, the main book which
1: really inspired me before, re, before writing the book that I'm writing is a book called Who They Was by Gabriel Krauser. So, uh, Gabriel Krause is a guy from Kilburn, northwest London, um, and he was involved in crime, selling, selling drugs, uh, burglaries, um, and at the same time he was studying an English literature degree at Queen Mary's, which is down the road from here, and, um, I'm also from London, I come from quite a poor background and, you know, I wasn't seriously involved in crime or anything, but I, I know people were sort of in and around that sort of space, and, um, he writes this book in like the language of 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 London and of, of, of young people from London and um, first of all, it's like just super like inspirational for me to hear like that style of speech used and, and made so beautiful. But secondly, he just presented these people as they are, and um, you know we see these like stereotyped images of like gang members on the news. But you know if you know these people, often they come from backgrounds of trauma and backgrounds of abuse you know and and to just I think to open up and tell the story of these people as they are it really inspired me to think okay you know I I worked in a place which has a lot of stereotyped images on TV in the film and I wanted to sort of show it to people how it is because you know everywhere you go on the trading floor you know drug dealers in East London there's good people and there's bad people Um, and this guy sort of telling it how it was opening up the emotions there um it really
0: made me think yeah i want to tell my story too so uh,
1: yeah gabriel crowds who they was i'd really recommend anyone to go and to buy
0: it and to read it brilliant gary stevenson thank you very much thank you thank you for listening to today's show macrodose is a planet b production if you enjoyed the show and you'd recommend it to friends please consider leaving us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts you can find all our episodes including our bonus interview content on our patreon at patreon.com slash macrodose